Well, hey, everybody. So great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. And as you probably already guessed, today we get to continue a series that we've called In the End that, as I've mentioned, has been a long time coming. I mean, for over two decades now, I've had the incredible honor of serving as a pastor. And as a result, I've had opportunities to have many conversations with people whose time on this earth is, is coming to an end. And during these conversations, I've noticed something, uh, namely that many of the questions that we tend to ask when we're first exploring faith, uh, questions about life and pain and God and religion and prayer and, and even what happens when we die, uh, they sort of resurface when we face either the end of our own life or the end of the life of someone that we love. And, and when these questions resurface... Well, they carry an urgency that they simply didn't have when life felt like it was just going to go on forever. Like, as it turns out, there are some really important questions that matter in the end. And so for six weeks, we're exploring a few of them as a way to sort of prepare us all for the day that they become the most important questions of all. And, and so this week, I, I want to consider another really fascinating question. This one, though, I think actually raises all sorts of other questions. The question that we're going to chase down this morning goes like this. Why would a loving God allow hell to exist? That's right, friends. It is hell day here at Keystone. And uh, I actually ran into a friend this week at Costco, and he said, hey, I just want you to know me and my family, we're coming to Keystone this week, first time ever. What are we going to talk about? And I said, well, how does next week look for you? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, why would a loving God allow hell to exist? I promise it'll be okay. Um, another way to think about this question, you know, if God loves us, like all of us, and I really believe that he does, then, then why would he allow there to be a place where he fully and finally wasn't? Uh, and, and it's a great question. And, and my guess is the answer to that question will surprise many of you, especially if you grew up in a religious environment like I did. Um, as I mentioned last week, I grew up in a large non-denominational church in the 1980s. Um, and because of that era, central to my understanding of the Christian faith was the answer to what happened to people after they passed from this life. Like, did they go to heaven or did they go to hell? And, and in fact, this topic was front and center during one of the most memorable and awkward moments of my faith journey. And if you know me, there's been a few awkward moments. There you go, right? Uh, but this particular awkward moment happened midway through my junior year of high school, uh, and it happened during an outreach event hosted by the student ministry of my church. Uh, and as I recall, there were hundreds of students from all over West Michigan who crammed into a college gymnasium on a Sunday morning, what could go wrong, right, uh, to kind of share in this, this experience. And many were kids who regularly attended their local youth groups, and others were kids who had been invited by kids who regularly attended their youth groups. Um, and, and the service opened with a band, because if you're doing an event for teens, you got to have a band. Um, and I'm telling you, it's been like over 30 years, and I can still remember the epic mullet that the lead singer wore. I mean, this guy set the bar pretty high. But anyway, after the music, um, a pastor took the stage in order sort of to inform all of us just how badly we were going to need Jesus when we died. And then, then after his talk, uh, like a drama unfolded, and it was kind of unnerving. What happened, as soon as he was done praying, like all the lights in the gym 
went out, um, and I sort of thought something had gone terribly wrong with the program, but then we heard, like, the haze makers start to hiss, and, like, smoke filled the room, and, and eventually, like, a single red spotlight illuminated a high school girl in overalls who informed us that she was in hell. I, my counselor says I've actually processed this experience pretty good, so we're, we're okay. But I'm just describing this like this was, this was not a great moment of church programming. But anyway, uh, this red spotlight comes up and this girl in overall says, you know, she's in hell because nobody told her about Jesus. And then she said, if we don't accept Jesus, you know, sacrifice for our sins, then we were going to end up in hell too. And then the lights went out again. I know. Uh, it, it was a little traumatic. And it was, they went out for a long moment. And then eventually the pastor returned to the stage kind of in a, in a spotlight himself um, and invited us to come forward to receive Jesus so that we wouldn't have to go to hell when we died. And I'm telling you, everybody went forward. <laughs> like every single person, including me. And I had done this 37 times during youth group too, but like why wouldn't you go forward, right? Like I don't know anybody who wants to go to hell. And then it was there in that moment, standing in front of the stage with hundreds of other kids, that a question flashed through my overly analytical adolescent mind, okay? Here's what I thought. I mean, people are crying around me, and, and I'm there in that moment thinking, is this really what Jesus had in mind when he talked about hell? Or is there something more that we might want to consider? And, and, and that question sort of lingered in the back of my mind for a few years until the sophomore year of college uh, when I was invited to be a part of a small group that on a dare decided to study what the Bible had to say about hell. And it was a really fascinating experience. I mean, the guys in the group were from all sorts of different backgrounds and consequently they had very different opinions about hell. And in fact, I remember like in our first meeting, we sat in a circle in the basement of our dorm. Um, and one of the guys said, you know, he wondered out loud if hell was nothing more than a myth made up by religious leaders to control people and raise money. He threw it out there. And then he also suggested that many people's images of hell were formed more by medieval Christian theology than the Bible. And I, like, I remember thinking, man, I can't wait to see what the Bible actually says about hell. And, and so as it turns out, that study back then provided an early framework of what I want to share with you today. In fact, what I want to do with the rest of our time is show you what the Bible's authors wrote about hell, and, and then I want to try to answer the question of why a loving God would allow such a place to exist. And, and so to get us going, um, I want to make the somewhat surprising observation that the Old Testament doesn't really contain anything specific about hell or heaven. Uh, instead, when its authors wrote about the afterlife, they used a word that generally referred to death or the grave, and it's the Hebrew word Sheol. Um, and, and in their understanding, Sheol was the place that all people went when they died. Like good people went there, bad people went there, people who were somewhere in between went there. And uh, modern scholars have done a lot of dredging and tried to figure out, like, what did these writers mean when they wrote Sheol? And what they've sort of, what they sort of come to is it at least was understood to be a synonym for death, and maybe it was a way to describe some sort of conscious, shadowy, subhuman existence after death, but we can't really be sure. And, and the word Sheol uh, shows up 65 times in the Old Testament, and most of those occurrences are in the Psalms, which is a collection of ancient Israel's songbook. So let me just show you one example to sort of give you a sense of how it's used. Um, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, uh, Israel's most famous king, a man by the name of David, wrote these words one day, 
to celebrate God's affection for him. David said, for great is your love to me, God. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. So from Sheol. So, so as you can kind of get from even one example, it's really hard to pin down exactly what the authors of the Old Testament were imagining when they used the word Sheol, other than uh, to note that it's really nothing like we think of when we tend to think of hell. So that literally is the Old Testament. So we're moving fast. Okay, now, historically speaking, uh, the sort of vision that we have of hell seems to have initially entered Jewish thought during the 400 years that separate the close of the Old Testament from the beginning of the New Testament. And, and sociologically speaking, it seems to have emerged due to an observation that, and I'm, and I'm sure you've noticed this, life isn't fair, right? I, like, we've all had moments when we've seen bad people do really bad things to really good people, and in these moments, it can really seem like, you know, evil has won and good has lost. Um, and apparently, sometime before the first century, sometime before the time of Jesus, ancient Jewish writers seem to have come to a similar conclusion. They came to believe that God must have a way after death to make things right, because life just isn't fair. And so he somehow needs to judge bad people for all the bad things that they do. In fact, um, and this is interesting, they came to believe that if God was simultaneously just and loving, then he sort of had to punish the people who had harmed other people. So that's sort of in between the Old and New Testaments, and that brings us to the time of the New Testament. And if you were to go to the New Testament and you were to look for uh, you know, any mention of hell, what you'd find is that there have been three different Greek words that over the years have been translated hell. And so what I do is I want to show you three of those briefly. The first two go really quick. Um, but the first word is the word Hades, and it's basically the Greek equivalent of Sheol. So it means like grave or death or sleep. Uh, and most of our modern translations of the Bible choose either not to translate it, they just leave it Hades, uh, or they describe it as depths, which is again kind of vague. Uh, so let me just show you how Jesus used this word once during a conversation with his disciples. Um, after he spent some time with them and they had seen him teach and they had watched him heal, uh, he asks them like, who do you think I am? And uh, Peter, who's Jesus' oldest disciple, responded that he believed that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah or anointed one who ancient Israelites believed that God would send one day to rescue them and to lead them into their future. And in response to Peter's declaration that he believed Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this proclamation of who I am, that I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. And here it is, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus says, my church will be unstoppable. But, but see, that's what he's saying here, but it doesn't give us much as far as our question of what is meant by the word Hades. Again, it's vague. So that's the first word. Uh, the second Greek word that has been historically translated hell is the word Tartarus. Uh, and it's used once, just once, in the New Testament, and it has its roots in Greek mythology, uh, specifically the writings of a guy that we mentioned last week, the greatest philosopher uh, in the Western Hemisphere of all time, a man named Plato. And so 400 years before the time of Jesus, he described Tartarus as a place where wicked souls 
received divine judgment. And, and as it turns out, that definition is incredibly consistent with how the word is used in a letter to early Christians written by Jesus' disciple, Peter. So let me show you what Peter said to this group of Christians one day. He wrote, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them in chains of uh, darkness to be held for judgment, dot, 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 right? In other words, Paul identifies Tartarus as the place of judgment for sinful angels. And then as he continues to write, like after the dot, 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 he basically says it's a place of judgment for false teachers within the church, which as a Bible teacher just makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside, right? Yeah. So, so that's the second word that's translated hell in the New Testament. And again, just one time it shows up. And the third and by far most common word that's translated hell by the New Testament authors is the Greek word Gehenna. And uh, this word is used 13 times in the New Testament, and 12 of those times it's actually used by Jesus. And scholars would tell us that the initial people to hear Jesus use this word would have imagined a real place near the city of Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley, it's still there to this day. It runs along the western edge of the city of Jerusalem. And actually, when we were planning our Israel trip, my wife and I, a few years ago, one of the options we considered, because there's a park now in this Hinnom Valley, we could have lunch in hell, <laughs> which I think would be good for, for the trip. But anyway, um, we opted out of that, at least so far. But yeah, so the, valley of, the Hinnom Valley runs along the western edge of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, it's interesting because according to a well-known rabbi in the 13th century, uh, this valley may very well have been the city garbage dump during the time of Jesus. Uh, and so this rabbi described the Hinnom Valley this way as he sort of reflected on it historically. He said, Gehenna, or the Hinnom Valley, is a repugnant place into which filth and cadavers are thrown and in which fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and the bones. I love that someone built a park there later. Just awesome. He said, on which account, by analogy, the judgment of the wicked is called Gehenna. So that's a rabbi named David Kimhi in the year 1200, and he's reflecting back. So his theory in ancient times that, you know, this was an abominable place and sort of the city garbage dump. Um, many scholars don't agree with him. Uh, however, they do affirm that Gehenna was still polluted ground in the first century because of some things that had happened there during a particularly dark period during the Old Testament times. Uh, during the Old Testament times, the Hinnom Valley was the site of the worship of the pagan god Baal, where apparently the residents of the city of Jerusalem sacrificed their children on an altar to Baal. And in fact, because of that reality, an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah issued a dire prediction. So 600 years before the time of Jesus, here's what Jeremiah told us. He said, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. So beware. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place the Valley of Ben-Hinnom or Gin-Hinnom or in the Hebrew and English is weird, but Gehenna, but the Valley of Slaughter. All that to say that the Valley of Gehenna was without question a really bad place in the minds of first century Jewish people. It was a vivid picture of what can happen when people do things that take creation away from what God intended. Like it was a cartoonish picture of that reality. When people do things that lead creation in a bad direction 
And in the end, God's will in that situation wasn't done. So that's the historical context for Gehenna. Uh, that said, let me show you a couple of examples of how Jesus used Gehenna. So the first time he uses it, um, it's in his most famous block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And midway through, uh, relaying a set of instructions to his listeners on how to live in a way that honors God's design for people, Jesus looks out at his audience and he says this. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And, and, I, and I know this sounds a bit extreme and intense. We kind of want to encourage Jesus to try the decaf when he gets up the next morning, right? But see, in the first century, the phrase, you fool, was a lot stronger criticism than it is today. It was the equivalent of looking at someone else and saying, you're worthless, and I wish you were dead. In other words, it was the ultimate expression of contempt that one person could utter at another person. And, and, and here's why Jesus knows that's such a big deal. See, Jesus knows that when someone wishes that someone else ceased to be, then they can justify almost any action against that person because they have chosen to view that person as less than human. And historically speaking, whenever that has happened, things on planet Earth have moved dramatically in the wrong direction. And the individual who commits the sin against another person has moved in ways worthy of divine judgment because they have done things that have absolutely no place in the age to come. And, and we talked about that last week. If you weren't with us, ancient Jewish people thought of human history as taking place in two ages. They called it this age, as in this life, and then the age to come, which is an age that happens on the other side of the grave, in this age to come where God's peace again reigns on planet earth. So again, this action has no place in the age to come, and so God will judge it. Uh, so that's the first example I want to show you. Um, Jesus says something similar a bit later in the same sermon. So during a monologue about the seriousness of sin, he instructs his audience by telling them that if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. <laughs> it, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And I know what some of you are thinking. I'm so glad I came to church today. I just feel so uplifted, right? Uh, but I was, I was digging into this passage, and I noticed something that I thought was, it kind of made me chuckle. I want to pass along. It's a little hard to catch. It's kind of a slow burn, but, but check this out. I, I think blind people can still lust. So, let's see, it wasn't funny yet. You'll get it in a second. Yeah. And so apparently, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, but what he's, what's undeniable is that he wants his followers to understand the toxic and destructive power of lust. He wants to warn them that whenever they lust, they're heading down a dangerous path because they're objectifying someone or something. And that's why lust can empower people to do things that would otherwise be unthinkable. And so whenever lust happens, things quickly become less like God desires them to be. Things on planet Earth move dramatically in the wrong direction, and the individual who commits the sin of lust against another person moves in ways worthy of divine judgment because they do things that have no place in the age to come when there will once again be peace on earth. So that's example, example number two. A third example I want to show you is, um, is 
you know, something that Jesus says midway through his time with his disciples. Because he kind of gathers them together and he says, okay, guys, it's time to take this thing further faster. So we're going to divide up two by two. I'm going to send you out to kind of do what I've been doing and teach what I've been teaching. Um, and as he's sending them out, he gives them this great locker room pep talk, and he tells them this, and this is just amazing. Um, I'm like, Jesus would not necessarily have been a great coach in this moment, but here we go. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul. See, if I was a disciple there, I'd already be tapping out. Like, what? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Jesus looks at his disciples, who he loves, and he says to them, listen, you need to fear God and not people. Like you can respect people, you can respect God, but you need to respect God more than you respect people because God is ultimately the one that controls the outcomes. And, and that's a really big deal if you think about it. Like Jesus, why was this so important? Well, I think Jesus would say, listen, when someone comes to fear people more than God, they will often find themselves doing strange things to keep those people's favor. And it was true then and it's true now. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you work for a highly unethical boss who asks you to do something highly unethical. But at the same time, as this request is being made, you have a sense that if you say no, your job may be on the line. So what do you do? Do you prioritize your fear of people or do you prioritize your fear of God? And if you choose to prioritize your fear of people, then you will do things that take creation in the wrong direction, that move you in ways worthy of divine judgment, because once again, they are things that have absolutely no place in the age to come where there will once again be peace on earth. Are you sensing the pattern? Let me give you one more. Uh, one day during a conversation with a group of Jewish religious leaders who had missed their calling because they were called to prioritize people over the following of their religious rules, but they had gotten the order wrong, Jesus looks at them and says, with fire in his eyes, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And I'm actually thinking about a summer series called The Woes of Jesus. I think it'd be fun. Whoa, that was not funny. I'm moving on. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. How will you escape being condemned to hell. And I'm telling you, if you've ever wondered why the religious leaders were so passionate about getting Jesus shut down and killed, there's a clue in this passage. I mean, these are fighting words, right? Anyways, um, apparently in the first century, Jewish religious leaders would often travel vast distances in order to gain followers. However, once they did turn someone to their system, they taught that person to behave in very destructive ways ways. They invited them to participate in a system that oppressed people in the name of God. And obviously, whenever someone oppresses someone else in the name of God, things on earth quickly become less like God wants them to be. Like creation moves in the wrong direction, and the individual committing the sin moves in ways worthy of divine judgment because they do things that have absolutely no place in the age to come when peace will again reign on earth. And, and, and so that brings me to the observation that's essentially what Jesus said about hell. But honestly, it makes me wonder, like, how are we supposed to think about hell today? And, and so to kind of chase down an answer to that question, I want to ask you a few questions. And the first one, to kind of summarize where we've been, goes like this. What are these hell passages about? In other words, um, 
what is the context in which Jesus brings up hell? And I made us a list for the sake of time. So the hell passages are basically about wishing someone wasn't alive, treating someone as an object, fearing people more than you fear God, and then toxic religion. In other words, these passages warn about things that people do that harm other people, things that make things less like God intends them to be. And, and so if you think about it, Jesus' message to his audiences are clear, right? His message is that our actions matter to God. Actually, they matter a lot. And he wants us to engage life very, very thoughtfully and ask ourselves the question, are we moving things in the right direction with the choices that we make? So that's the first question. Uh, here's another one. Who is Jesus talking to when he brings up hell? And this is, this is interesting because if you think about it, Jesus was always talking to insiders when he brought up hell, like his disciples and religious people and religious leaders and even like average Jewish people that walked up on a hill to hear him deliver a sermon. He never brought it up with outsiders, like never pagans or heathens or non-Jewish people. The authors of the Bible call them Gentiles. And that is absolutely fascinating if you think about it, like why Jesus brings it up with sort of people who are already in and not people who are not in yet. I think that's something to totally talk about over lunch. So uh, one more question, and it goes like this. So according to Jesus, what is hell? And I think it's fair to say, based on the passages that we've explored, um, Jesus saw hell both as a present reality where things are temporarily not as God wants them to be, and a future reality where things are fully and finally not as God wants them to be. And so that said, Jesus used the image of hell as a warning and as a reminder to the people of Israel of their calling to live in a way that could show the world what God was like and how he desired things to be. To live in a way that brought a little bit of heaven here and now. And not to live in such a way that brought a bit of hell here and now. And you actually see this in, in, in Jesus when he teaches his disciples to pray, right? If you grew up in church where you recited the Lord's Prayer, you know this, right? It's like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Bring a bit of the way of heaven here and now. Not fully and finally because you can't, but with the influence you have, that's where I want you to lean. So you can lean in a way that brings a bit of heaven here, and you can lean in a way that brings a bit of hell here. You, you, might, even be able, you might even say that, you know, from God's perspective, you can have all the hell you want right here and right now. You're that free. And at least for me, that raises a question of what if the same is true in the afterlife? What if the same is true in the age to come? Said a bit differently, what if people who are in hell chose to be there? Which, of course, brings us back to the question of why a loving God would allow hell to exist. And, and as it turns out, I think the answer to that question is in the question. And here's why I say that. Um, if God really loves us, then hell must exist because love 
demands that God provide a place for people who don't want to be with him for eternity. It wouldn't be loving to force some people to be with him forever. And, and so, from the very beginning of time, God has risked rejection by people in order to find people who desire to be in a relationship with him, a relationship in which they begin walking with him in this life, admittedly unperfectly, and standing in the grace they've received in Jesus, and a life in which they continue to walk with him on the other side when his kingdom fully and finally comes. So I, I believe that that invitation is true in this life, and it's true with what happens after this life. And so again, if, if God really loves us, then there must be a place in eternity where he is not. And if that strikes you as, as odd, then, then you should know that I didn't come up with that. Thank you very much, right? Uh, it's actually been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as Christian scholars have sort of wrestled with these passages and wrestled with the concept of hell. And I, I think it was probably most brilliantly summarized a few decades ago by one of my favorite authors, a man named C.S. Lewis. Um, and so if any of this sparks your interest, um, I would highly recommend his book, The Great Divorce. But here's the relevant passage from that book. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He says, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. And then it, then it turns and he gets really hopeful, and I love this. He says, no soul that seriously and consciously desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Why? Because God loves us, all of us, so much so that he will give us what we want, both in this life and in the life to come. And, and, and that, my friends, um, was a message about hell that actually points us to the indescribably, inconceivably beautiful that God love that God has for everyone everywhere. I mean, he's God. He could have demanded, but in love, in love he chose to invite so that we could know him as our heavenly father who loves us more than we can possibly imagine on the side of eternity. And so with that, um, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. And, and if you came into this place and, and you're like, that interesting, I just really need to talk to someone, I'd love to invite you. We have some volunteers that will be under the screen to the left and they would love to pray over you and, and, and talk to you a little bit. But for the rest of us, let me close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, this week as I was studying, I just kept being overwhelmed with wonder at how beautiful you are and how beautiful your love towards us is. I mean, beyond what we can even understand. So thank you. Thank you for inviting and not forcing. Thank you for not forsaking us when we forsake you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that that covers our sins, that we who have accepted him as Savior need not fear our future because our future is secure in your hands. 
And I pray that we would use the time that we have on this earth to bring a bit of your kingdom here and now. Awaken in us areas in our life where we have compromised and need to repent and return to your ways. But for today, for this moment, we just say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing good in us even when we can't see good in ourselves. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.